Our pastor is on uh, vacation, um, like uh, looks like a lot of people. Um, so um, we hope he gets uh, some rest and, and time to uh, enjoy with his family. And so uh, you get the, I don't know if you would say privilege or just say opportunity um, for me to, to speak with you uh, this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, my name is Patrick Smith. I'm the associate pastor to students um, here at Cornerstone. It's my privilege and honor um, to work with, with teenagers. And um, as crazy as you may think I am, I actually do love working with students. I really do. I love working with students. Um, as I was preparing this message um, this week, I realized that come this fall, I will be entering my 15th year of student ministry. So I was not only crazy enough to go into student ministry, I stayed in student ministry. So thank you. Um, it, is, it really is um, a, the joy of my heart um, to work with teenagers. Um, but, you know, one of the difficult things in working with teenagers is that teen culture is constantly changing. Right. And not just teen culture, but I mean, culture in general. Just think about the last 15 years since I started working in student ministry, how much our culture has changed. Right. 15 years ago. Think about this. Facebook was just starting to become a thing. All right. And 15 years ago, you actually still had to have a college email address to get on Facebook. 15 years ago, the iPhone wasn't even a thing. The iPhone hadn't even come out, right? And so the fact that, you know, the um, smartphones that we all love and enjoy today, um, really, it was more for like executives and, and who had Blackberries and Palm Pilots and what are even those things anymore, right? And, um, and so as your youth pastor, one of the things that I enjoy learning about is how differently we are generationally and how that influences the different aspects of our life and how we view the world around us. <laughs> From baby boomers to baby busters, to millennials to Gen Zers, the generation in which you grew up in has a huge impact and influence on the way you see the world around you, the way you interact with it, um, and even perceive what's normal, right? So here's, a, here's an example of what I mean. For some of you, you perceived this as normal teenage dress. So that first one. Right? For some of you, this was you as a teenager, right? You said that's normal. That's not weird at all. Look at that hair. For some of you in this room, you would perceive this as normal teenage dress. Right? Where is Zach Morris? Right? That was normal. You, you didn't think that was weird. Now looking back on it, you might be thinking what the heck was going on. But as a teenager, you're like, this is normal. This is, this is what it is. Right? If you were in my generation, you might perceive this next one to be a normal look as, as a teenager. Right? I confess to the first service, I actually tried uh, this look when I was a teenager. I ended up looking more like a spotted leopard um, than... Nearly as cool as those guys um, up there. And um, I think everybody else in the room would say there is nothing normal about any of those pictures, right? But one of the things that I enjoyed about my generation growing up was the expansion of contemporary Christian music, right? As a result of the 1970s, what's been known as the Jesus Movement, 
Contemporary Christian music exploded in the 1990s, expanding into all sorts of genres, into rock, into rap, country music, gospel. And the first Christian band I remember listening to was a band by the name of DC Talk. We got any Jesus freaks in here? I got a couple. Yeah, all right, right? Right, DC Talk. Their 1995 album entitled Jesus Freak <coughs> changed Christian music forever. It's been seen as one of the most monumental albums in Christian contemporary Christian music that has ever hit um, Hit, hit the culture. In fact, um, the Jesus Freak sales from the first week that it came out um, set records that have still to this day have not been eclipsed by any other Christian artists. And while everybody remembers the title track, it was actually another song on the, on the album that really stuck with me. See, at the beginning of the song, What If I Stumble... A recording of, of author Brennan Manning plays and says this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny them or deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And what I wondered then as a preteen is what I still wonder to this day. Why would and how could Christians, the very people tasked to share the good news of Jesus, be the largest stumbling block for people coming to know Jesus? See, unfortunately, while Brendan Manning's statement may have been true then, the reality now is that people aren't turning to a disbelief in God, atheism, as much as a disbelief in the God that they've been presented According to a Pew Research, in 2014, nearly a quarter of Americans claim no religious affiliation, which was up 7% from just seven years prior. This group, commonly referred to as nuns, short for religious belief, they check none, make up nearly 56 million people in America alone. Why? Famous Buddhist monk Mahatma Gandhi is famous for saying, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. If all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be a Christian. As far as we know, he never accepted Christ. Mother Teresa, in responding to Gandhi's statement, she said, Gandhi felt fascinated at knowing Christ. He met Christians and felt let down. Bottom line, most of those claiming no religious affiliation in America today have had some connection with Christianity in the past, but have now rejected it. They're not non-Christian in the way in which the church is accustomed to understanding them. Rather, they are post-Christian. They've been there, they've done that, and they aren't buying it. In this post-Christian culture, People know the stories, they just don't believe them. Or better yet, they don't believe them anymore. According to a Barner Research Group, 48% of Americans qualify as post-Christian. 
As our pastor said last week, some people are on their way to Jesus, while others are in the way of people coming to Jesus. Just recently, J.D. Greer, pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh and president of the Southern Baptist Convention, at their annual meeting, (coughs) said that we are at a crossroads, not regarding doctrine or mission, but rather what kind of gospel witness we will be in the age like ours. Interesting enough, the group in which Jesus bucked heads with the most were the ones tasked to teach people about God and should have been leading people into a relationship with God. Church is of great importance that as we identify people in which we specifically choose to pray for and reach out to as part of our who's your one focus, that we also wrestle with this dilemma. And that's what I hope to be doing this morning. If you have your Bible with you and you open it up, turn it on, wake it up, and go with me to Luke chapter 15. (laughs) If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Um, Don't worry, we'll have it on the screen that you can follow along um, with us as well. But if you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 15. In chapter 15, we encounter an interaction between Jesus and some religious leaders. And then we see his response to them. And from this chapter, I believe that there are three truths about God that we all need to be reminded of, regardless of our belief, regardless of if you identify yourself as a Christian or not. I believe there are three truths about God that we need to be reminded of and acknowledge. From those three truths, if you are a believer in Jesus, there are three rebukes that Jesus gives the Pharisees that we also need to account for. And if you're a guest with us this morning and have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you don't even identify with him in any sort, way or shape or I believe there are three apologies that we as a church need to give you. Will you pray with me this morning as we get started? Father, I pray that your love would be enough. And that our lives would echo that truth. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Alright, so jumping into Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And all we have are are two short verses here that kind of set the scene, set the stage to what is about to go down. And we learn two things. One, that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. Yes. And the Pharisees and scribes aren't happy about it. Go figure. And the author, Luke, describes their actions as as grumbling. Other translations, they complain or or they're murmuring amongst themselves. In other words, the understanding is that they're complaining in such a way that they're not keeping it to themselves, but they're letting everybody else around them know how they feel. And we all know what this looks like, right? Willing to complain and criticize, but unwilling to take steps to help or do anything about it, right? 
Or maybe that would be the equivalent of today um, complaining and posting something on social media as if that changes anything. Or parents, it's when your kids are complaining about not having any clean clothes but unwilling to do some laundry. Right? And Matthew Henry makes note uh, of these two verses, this exchange between the religious individuals and, and the two things in which they're mad about. First, that Jesus would associate himself with such people. Look at this. It says, he eats with them. Right? Eating together implied actually wanting to get together and and form a relationship with someone. Right? We still do that today. When we meet someone, we say, hey, we'd love to have you over sometime for dinner and just to get to know you some more. Right? To the Pharisees, this type of relationship with sinners would make a person ceremonially unclean. And so they would avoid these people. Secondly, that Jesus, the, the thing in which the, the Pharisees are mad about, is that Jesus would extend his message to such people. Not only associate with them and actually want to have a relationship with them, but he's actually extending his message to them. Look at this. It says that he receives sinners, that he welcomes them to the message in which he's sharing. In their eyes, in the eyes of the religious, the message of repentance was limited to certain people. There were certain people that you talked to it about. There were certain people that you didn't talk to them about. So the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. Ugh. And don't think for a second that those around Jesus didn't hear him or hear them. And didn't know what people thought about him. So just like Jesus does, our Savior stands up and he defends them. And he highlights three truths about God that I think we need to be reminded of today. The first is this, that God personally values each of us individually. Look at this starting in verse three. It says, he, Jesus, told them this parable. In other words, he's moved to respond. He says, what man of you have a hundred sheep and if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that which was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, why God does value us collectively, this value is experienced personally. So we all know the verse John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, but it's important that we also understand this, that God loves you. Individually, you. After all, what's, what's one compared to, to 99 unless the value is personally attached to each? The shepherd leaves the collective group because he understands the individual value and the personal attachment and value of each sheep to him. He doesn't say, well, what's one lost sheep? I've got 99. We also see the value in how he deals with the sheep. Shepherd didn't scold the sheep for running off. Doesn't belittle them. 
but rather he lays it on his shoulders all the while rejoicing in doing so. He doesn't carry it grumbling and complaining. Stupid sheep, I gotta carry you walked off. Now you're getting so heavy and I'm starting to sweat. Because his greater personal joy comes from saving the lost sheep. One's repentance and faith brings more joy and glory to God than the obedience of 99. So first we're reminded that God personally values each of us individually. But God also... God goes to great lengths to redeem us. After finishing the first parable, Jesus then jumps into a next one. He says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the second parable, a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. Now the silver coin is only worth about a fourth of a shekel, so it doesn't really have a whole lot of monetary value. But however, things have a real as well as an intrinsic value to them. What others wouldn't seem of much worth to some might be worth more than anyone could imagine. What scholars believe to be more of a probable interpretation is that the ten coins were the ten silver pieces worn as a frontlet given to a bride from her groom on their wedding day. Similar to how we have a, a wedding ring. Ladies, if you're married... Don't you remember receiving that engagement ring and showing it off to all of your friends because of how much value it was to you? And yes, that ring cost a lot of money. Married men, can I get an amen? Amen. There's not a whole lot of married men in here, right? But ladies, to you, the value of that ring is not how much was spent on it, but what it represents and what it's pointing to. The life in which you have with your spouse. Ladies, can you imagine the panic that would set in if you lost the diamond on your ring? And so the woman lights the lamp and she sweeps the floor and she's probably getting down on her hands and knees looking around. Oh my gosh, I've lost this coin which goes with something that means so much to me. And she's looking for it and she's frantically searching and then she finds it. And when she does, she lets everyone know the joy of what it is to find that which was lost because that which was lost means so much to her. The same is true of our Father in heaven. Our value is represented by the great lengths God took to reclaim that which was lost. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8, Paul says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who, is exi- who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. And so instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior goes to great lengths to redeem that which was lost. 
But third, that God's value of us is not affected by our sin. Jesus, in responding to the Pharisees, he hits them with the first parable, he hits them with the second parable, and now he's going for the jugular, and he's here in verse 11, he says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into the country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the, hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him out into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and, and put it on him and, and bring a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet and, and bring the fattened calf and, and kill it and, and let us eat and celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to this, the house, he heard the music and, and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said, and they said to them, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never once gave me a single goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the the son of yours came. The son who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him? And so he, the father, said to the son, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. In this third parable, the ungrateful son more or less tells his father, I don't want to have to wait around for you to die to get what is coming to me. So why don't you just go ahead and give me my share now so that I can enjoy it. <coughs> and long story short, he goes off and he squanders it. He falls on hard times. And then decides to return home to ask forgiveness from his father. But look at this as he's a 
approaching the Father. And as the Father sees Him, still a long way away coming, the Father in His love and compassion for His Son, He runs to greet Him. He's not waiting around. And the son begins to, to ramble on about, I, I'm, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. I, I've sinned against you. I'm of no worth. And the father stops him. And he said, I, I'm going to show you how much worth you are to me. Bring my best robe and put it on him. Bring the ring signifying who you are, part of my family, and give it to him. Put shoes on his, his feet and that fattened calf that, that we've saved for a special occasion. Go kill it. We're going to eat it and we're going to celebrate. The son's sin did not affect his value, but rather his position to the father. This younger son was never not loved. Rather, his sin had created a distance between the father and the son. See, one of the characteristics of sin is that sin always separates, but it does not devalue. You don't believe me? Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of our sin that Jesus was moved to respond and to offer himself to you. See, as we recognize these three truths, don't forget while we're hearing them. See, they're all in response to the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, remember? And so in sharing these parables, Jesus is saying to them, first, you gain your joy from how you see yourself collectively rather than how God rescues you personally. See, the Jewish leaders would have been first to quote Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For we are a holy people belonging to the Lord our God. The Lord our God has chosen us to be his own possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, God chose us. The issue is that they were chosen and adopted by God so that through them they would be the people in which the rest of the world was to come to know God. But instead they created a have and have nots culture. Instead of joyfully showing God to the world, they grumbled when God was being presented and associated with the very people he wanted to be introduced to. God's relationship with Israel was intended to be with them and through them to the world, not with them and stop. When Peter writing to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 he says but you talking to believers in Christ but you now are also a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people of his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light He's reminding the believers not to forget why you are who you are Church, have we forgotten why we are who we are? Have we also fallen prey to creating a culture of have and have-nots?
So the first rebuke that Jesus gives to the Pharisees that we must also account for is that they gain their joy from how they see themselves collectively rather than how God rescues them personally. The second, he rebukes them that you have put your own ambitions ahead of God's. Instead of being God's light to the world and pulling people into a relationship with God, the religious were putting their own ambitions first. In the second parable, the woman turned the house upside down and searched for what was lost. Yet while Jesus is talking with sinners, the Pharisees and scribes aren't even willing to associate with them. How are we supposed to reach them if we don't even know them? A Christian that does not know a lost person is no follower of Christ. Rather, they have let their own self-centered ambitions and using religious clout for personal gain distract them from the calling of all believers to share the good news of the gospel to all people, not just those who, those who they see fit. It's easy to get busy doing church and doing church things that we forget to do the things in which the church was meant to do. Thirdly, you have found your value in your obedience rather than the father's adoption of you. In the third parable, after the younger son returns home, the older son gets mad and and his response is telling. And what he says to the father when the father comes out to him. And when the father approaches, the main fuel to to the older son's anger is that he believes as a result of his years of obedience... That he deserves that which was given to his brother. But what the older son doesn't realize is that everything given to the younger brother had already been available to him. Not because of his obedience, but because he was his son. When we base our relationship with God on what we do for him, we fall into therapeutic moralism. We want our relationship with God to make us feel good and deserving rather than because we know ourselves as sons and daughters of the one true God. If the older son had found his worth in being a son rather than his obedience, he would have responded as his father did at the return of his brother. The father says, how could I not celebrate this? Our son, my son and your brother has returned. He's saying it's in my DNA. Church, do we find the desire to see people coming to Jesus as part of our DNA? Finally, as Jesus is rebuking the, the religious leaders, he's also apologizing to those who have gathered around him. And if you're here this morning and you aren't, you aren't a believer, you aren't a Christian, and, and you're here this morning because maybe um, you're visiting as a result of VBS or a friend has invited you or just by God's providence you somehow ended up here this morning. I want to apologize to you in these three ways. First, 
I'm sorry that we have focused on the wrong things while diminishing your value and creating an us versus you mentality. Yes, apart from Christ, we are all sinners, but that never affects your value. And I know we don't always do the best job of showing it, but we love and value you. Because you're created in the image of God. Jesus died on the cross so that he could show you how much he loves and values you also. I'm sorry that we post and argue about and invest more time and energy into our political stance than the time and energy spent talking about Jesus and living out his love that he has for you. To the waiters and waitresses, I'm sorry that you dread working on Sundays because that's when Christians go out to eat. I had a professor in in school. He said, if you have enough money to go out to eat, you have enough money to tip. If you don't have enough money to tip, you don't need to go out to eat. I'm sorry that many of us have created an understanding or a box of what it means to be a Christian that Jesus himself wouldn't fit in, nor would he want to. I'm sorry that we have looked at you as a project to be fixed rather than a friend to be loved. Will you forgive us? Secondly, I'm sorry that we have gotten good at doing church rather than being the church to you. We've become distracted doing things of God while forgetting to be the people of God. We're great at dropping Christianese phrases in response to a hurting world rather than getting our hands dirty and stepping into the messes of life alongside of you. We're great at inviting you to church activities, revivals, and Sunday morning gatherings, but we've gotten pretty bad at walking across the street and showing you we love and value you as a person. Unfortunately, we've valued our comfort more than the desires to know you and to share the greatest story ever told with you. Will you forgive us? And third, I'm sorry that more of us have not come running. Because we haven't come running running to you with the greatest news that a person could ever experience, we have discredited it. One of my undergraduate youth professors tells his testimony of coming to know Jesus Christ. He said growing up, he kind of had a a rough um, upbringing, a rough life, but he always had his, his best friend with him, right? You know that best friend that when the two of you get together, just stuff happens? Yeah, he said when we would get together, stuff happened, and a lot of times they would get in trouble together. And it wasn't until his junior year when I believe it was, he said it was his English teacher um, began to pray for him specifically. His, his English teacher and her husband um, had pictures of all of their students and they, they would pray for them individually that they would come to know Christ. And so this English teacher and her husband's praying for this teenage boy at the, around the beginning of his senior year they were able to share the gospel with him and he accepts Christ. And in his joy and in excitement, he runs directly to his best friend after accepting Christ. 
He says, hey, I, I've got to tell you about this, this, this greatest thing ever. And he begins to explain and talk about Jesus. And in the middle of it, his son says, hold, hold on, hold on. I already know Jesus. And my professor said at that time, he's never been more angry with the individual who called him his best friend, had never shared the love of Christ with him. He said it took everything not to punch him in the face. And so at that day, he made a vow to himself that he was going to share Christ with every single senior in his senior class before graduation. And he did. You see, there's no value in our message if we don't treat the message as if it has value. By the way that we live, by the way that we live out its truths, and by the way that we eagerly tell others about it. Will you forgive us? As we're about to sing here, I'm in a moment and enter into a a time of uh, response. If you would accept my apology and even take me up on the offer of having a conversation about God and and wanting to know more about Jesus, um, I'll I'll be down front over to the side and um, I also know we have friends here that would, would love to talk with you more about that. But church, I believe it's time that we acknowledge Jesus with our lips and walk out the door and prove it with our lives. As we're about to sing, I encourage you to examine your hearts and ask yourself, have you been leading people to Jesus? Or standing in the way of people coming to Jesus. If it's the latter, let's make today a new day. Would you pray with me? Father, you are the greatest message ever told. And I pray that our lives would echo that truth. God, I pray to our our friends and neighbors that they would know the love of Christ by the way that we live and share it with them. God, I pray that we would give value to your message by the way that we live out its truths. And God, if there's anyone here this morning that would love to learn more about you, God, I pray that you would move in, in them and to have conversations with maybe the people who brought them or to come forward and and talk with me more. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.